But speaking of the land this morning, today is the 113th day of the war of Israel. Uh, the IDF continue to fight against the evil and the darkness that has come against them of Hamas. And this last week, I believe it was one day this week, I forget the day now, but over 21 soldiers were killed in a building explosion collapse. And, um, and that's tragic. I mean, they're stand firm against the lies and the veil, which some of us city, town was told to evacuate because of the attacks coming in from the north. So if you think of Boaz, can remember to pray. I think he and several others stayed to um, just defend their, their city. So uh, it could escalate. And so we want to pray for people. Their jobs are disrupted. Uh, tourism is no longer there because people don't want to go into a war zone, obviously. So we need to pray for them. Uh, pray for what is going on, their economic need. You need to pray for Israel. Don't give up. Keep praying. There's a radio commentator a number of years ago that says the, the attention span of the American public is eight days. In other words, eight days and we move on to something else. And, if I, and I, ever since I heard that, I've tracked that. About eight days will you get a headline news, headline news, and then it will go away. And whatever happened to that? Because we move on to another difficulty. Well, sometimes that happens in prayer, too. We pray for intensely for four or five days, maybe eight days, and then afterwards we move on in our prayers. But those needs are still there to pray. It's a, a lot. We must continue to pray for every battle that we are in spiritually. The abortion issue, we need to continue to pray. Last week was Sanctuary Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We need to pray, uh, continue to pray against the sex trafficking that is going on for our children for our nations, for our families, for our church. We need to be a people of prayer in these days and continue to do that. So if you would just join me in prayer as we begin this morning. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of, of exchange where we can bring our troubles, our trials, our sickness, our, all those things and receive from you the joy of the Lord. I pray that we might be able to walk in your joy we might really understand where that comes from. And so, Lord, we give you Israel again. It belongs to you, and we thank you for that land. Thank you for that our Savior come, came out of that place, out of that land. And I thank you for that you're going to return to the land of Israel, the land you called your own. So we pray for them today. We pray for safety. We pray for wisdom. We pray for their leaders. And also, Lord, we continue to pray for the Akron Pregnancy Service, and so many more that are uh, ministering to people in those, uh, facing those choices. I pray for life, Lord. We speak life, not death. We speak against this, the murder of abortion. So, Lord, we're, we're holding up and trafficking and all the other things. Lord, you know this world, and we know what, you know what we face. So we're asking you to have your way, have your will. Make victory be always to you, Lord, the victory and praise. So, Lord, we give you this time this morning, we give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Colossians. Colossians, please turn there in your Bible. If it's flops open there, that's a good thing, because we're going through this uh, letter, and we're facing it time after time after time, the things that God has done. And we come to a section of Scripture where, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, uh, Paul in his writing moves us from teaching us 
things we need to know about God, things we know about ourselves, things we need to know. And it's called teaching. It's the doctrine part of his writing, chapters 1 and 2. He never quite gives up with that because we'll see some things this morning. But the idea is he wants to fill our minds with truth in who we are in Christ and all that God has done for us through his son Jesus. And so as we're learning these things, then comes the place where that phrase comes, now the rubber meets the road. We've got to see how this lives out. How does this work out in our lives? The practical living out of the truth that we know. And that's always a difficulty, isn't it? Uh, we learn something, but can we do it? Can we apply it to our lives? I remember in college and school and all those kind of places, you're studying these courses, and one of the things that I'm facing with my grandchildren, of course, my own boys said the same, what difference does it make if I can know what a parallelogram is? Well, wait, you need that when you're making cookies and when you're working on a car. You've got to know what that stuff is. I don't need to know it, Dad. I don't want to learn it. You've got to learn it, right? And somewhere along the line, you might apply that particular truth, but it's learning things, and then really it's the application. There are people that need to know that information in their chosen professions and so forth. Not sure I need to know it, but some of you might really need to know. If you don't know what a parallelogram, look it up in Google after church, and it might come back to you. All right. This passage that we're going to look at, and let me read it for you. Go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And of all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We're going to just take that block, that paragraph, and look at it this morning. It is a very important one. It looks very self-explanatory. I mean, look, put these things on. We all sort of know what those things look like. But how does that get applied in my life? But this is a passage of Scripture that throughout the years I have often used in a marriage ceremony at the wedding when I give my words to the bride and groom. I will go to Colossians chapter 3 and tell them, clothe yourself with these things. Put on your clothes with these. Don't put on anger and bitterness and jealousy and covetousness and all that kind of stuff, but put on love, or uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Learning how to do that. Don't come into your marriage to put on the garments of war and anger and bitterness and self-centeredness. And all the young couples look at me and said, okay. If I'd ask them three months later, how's that working for you? We don't know where the closet is. We, <laughs> we've learned how to, I want my way kind of thing. I know there's not any married couples in here I've ever experienced that one, have you? Are you here? Is anybody here? Wake up the person beside you and tell him to respond a little bit because if he doesn't get response, he preaches a lot longer. Okay? So if you respond a little bit, I'll hurry up and get done. Okay? You see, we've got to wear the clothing of a righteous person, a clothing of the citizenship of heaven. And Paul writes to them, clothe yourself. He begins this section as therefore. What is the therefore? You have to go up above and say, this is what he's saying. And he said, because of all that I've said here, therefore do this and live like this. And the, the thing that he, he goes back to is verse 11. And I'll just get the last several words. Christ is all 
and is in all. Therefore. So if Christ is all and in all, that's he is all I need. You used to sing a chorus years ago, he is all I need, he is all I need. Jesus is all I need. Why? Because he can supply every need that I have. And he teaches me how to live in a world like this. And so he's all that I need in all of life's disappointments. When things don't go the way you planned on them, whether you're in sickness or trial or trouble, he's all that you need to know him. You've got to know Jesus. He's all in all. In times when you're being tempted, things are coming at you and you're, you're uh, flesh rises up and you want to respond to that. Christ is all you need. He is your victor. He is your strength. And he's given us of the Holy Spirit that we can stand against that. Even in the hour of death, he's all you need. My mom passed away a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago now. I, I understood more of what that means with Christ is all in all. When your loved one passes away, is he there in death? Yes, he has victory over those who are in fear of death. Held by the bondage of death. He has been victor over that. And if you know the Lord Jesus, then it becomes a stepping stone into heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He is all we need. And it says that Christ is all and in all. He is both the loving God and an almighty God. He loves us to the uttermost, the farthest reach you can even imagine. And he's also powerful, the power that upholds everything in his universe. He is all. Now, throughout this letter, Paul has been continuously telling them who they are. Who are you? And he says it over and over again. Let me go back. Let's go to chapter 1. I'm going to look at just a couple of verses here. Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 12. I'm just going to pick out some of the things that we've already studied and looked at over the weeks. Verse 12. They're giving thanks, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of life. Light. So he said, you, have been, you are a qualified person to enter in to all of my kingdom matters, my authority, my throne. You're, you are qualified to do that in all that it go. Holy people, kingdom of light. Look at verse 14. He says, in whom we've received redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You are redeemed. Verse 13 says you've been rescued. You are a rescued person, redeemed. Look down at verse 22. Verse 22, he said, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So he's already forgiven us. He's reconciled us. And then we can be presented without blemish and free from accusation. I tell you, these are major statements because most of us walk around with some shame and some guilt going on. And we feel like, well, I'm just never good enough, can't be good enough. But Jesus said, I can wash you, reconcile, and you can be without blemish and without blame and accusation. Okay, keep going down verse 27. Verse 27. To, who, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does he say about them as a believer? Christ is in you. That's your hope of glory. Look down at chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, down verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, and with you also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, forgave us all our sins, canceled out the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and came, condemned us. He's taken away, nailing it to the cross. He's made a public display of that. Now, 
here again, what does that mean to me? It says that I am now, I am free, I am raised with Christ, I have his life, it's in me, and I'm alive by Christ living in me. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. So he's saying all these things about us. He said, you've been redeemed, you've been set free, you've been qualified, you, uh, you belong to me, and you're now raised with me in life. Look at verse 3 again of chapter 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we're hidden with Christ. So all those things um, have bearing upon our character and our life when we're hidden in Christ. And so I ask myself, why, do, why do, does Paul keep repeating this? Wouldn't it be just good to say it once and let's just move on? But no, we need to hear it over and over and over. You need to hear what God thinks about you. You need to walk in what his word says through Christ that you have and can do it. I always remember that um, movie came out a number of years ago, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, Tevi and his wife are sort of sitting up in bed talking and he asked her, do you love me? What do you mean, do I love? I cook for you, I clean for you, I do all those. No, do you love me? Why? And, and I know the answer that many people give. If I ever change my mind, I'll tell you. You know? No, do you love me? Why? We need the affirmation that we're loved. There's no greater thing as a child that you see that child coming. I love you. I love you. Why? We need to hear it. For some of you in this room, you haven't heard those words for a long time. So I'm here to tell you the Bible says that God loves you. God loves you. In fact, turn to a person closest to you and say, God loves you. Tell them that. That might be the first time they've heard the words loved for a long time. God loves you. He says so in his word. For God so loved you that he gave his son. So now again, in verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul says some things to the people that they needed to hear. Again, I just gave you about five or six verses up to this point. And now in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. There's three words that are given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that are going to say things that you need to hear again this morning. Number one, he said, you are chosen by God. Now, I don't know if you were an athlete or a good ball player or someone who did good, but I, if anybody remembers, all the guys that line up, we choose two captains, and they would choose you. Well, I want him. Well, I want him. I want him. I want her. I want her. I want And then they get down to that last score, and it gets, nobody wants me. Well, you got to take him. you got to take him on your team. I don't know if anybody's been in that place. I tried not to be. If I wasn't going to be one, I certainly wanted to be number two. Pick me, pick me, pick me. I'm really good. No, you're not, Schumann. Get to the end of the line. We don't want you. You know, but so we all have been chosen at some point. But when it says that we've been chosen by God, that brings an emphasis that is far beyond what you can even imagine. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's grace given, choice given. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. It's back to uh, books to the front of your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. And then look at verse 4. 
Maybe we ought to go back to three. Maybe we ought to go back to, let's, no, stay at three. We can start in Genesis and move on, but let's go to three. Ephesians 1, three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessings in Christ. Listen, here it is. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in according with the, his pleasure and will. He has chosen us. Not only does I said God loves you, but he has chosen you. And I think if we were looking in the mirror and said, well, I chose me? Probably not. Because I know me. And I know all my failures and all my weaknesses. I wouldn't choose me. But God says, I chose you before the foundation of the world, before the creation even occurred, he knew you, and he said, I've chosen you, and I've, by my pleasure and my goodwill, to give you um, grace, to choose you. You're, you're a son, a daughter of mine. You belong to me. I've chosen you. His pleasure, his decision. Let's go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. I was reminded of a story about forgiveness, and part of the choosing of and forgiveness. And what response that should engender within my own heart. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Luke 7 verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a single sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Verse 38. As she stood before him at his feet weeping, she began to wipe his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet, and poured perfume on them. What, a, what an intimate, what a story. What an event that took place. Can you imagine? You're sitting there, here comes this woman who doesn't have a good reputation in town. She was, uh, you know, she was terrible. She was a uh, sinful life. And she comes in, and she's just weeping, and puddles are happening. Her tears are flowing down, and puddles are happening, and they're landing on Jesus' feet. And she's bowed so low with her long hair, she begins to wipe off her tears with her hair. And then she takes this alabaster box full of perfume, which could have been worth a year's wages. So if a year's wages now, I don't know what they say it is, 30,000 a year, whatever that wa annual average wage is for an American, it's worth $30,000. I mean, it's expensive. That's what it was worth. But she's pouring it onto his feet. Now, there's some people around that didn't like it. Look at verse 38, when, or verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he'd know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. How could he let that happen? 
if he's such a good guy and a prophet, I've invited him to eat with me, but if he's all that in a bag of chips, how does he not know that this woman has no right to be here, shouldn't be here, not even in my house, but then to do just what she did? He rises up in indignation inside of himself. Jesus answered, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, he said. I think by the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus knew exactly what the man was thinking in his mind. And he said, tell me, teacher. And here's Jesus' story. He said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay them back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came in your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a, a greeting kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And he goes on with the story. When you and I understand the grace that God has given to us in forgiving us of our sin, there should be a response of weeping at his feet. How could he do that? How can he forgive after all that I've done? Because if you think salvation and your relationship with God is simply based upon your ability to live at a certain standard, to behave in a certain way, to have a good reputation out there, you're not going to love God very much. By that I mean he who has sinned much, forgiven much, will be loved, will love much. To really understand, because when I understand my desperate condition and to think that the God of heaven chose me, the God of the universe who put the stars in place came and forgave me, what else can I do but love him all the more? I don't want to take you back to your day of your salvation, but to that time period, whatever it is. Do you remember the joy? The absolute washing over from sin? Think of that. God has chosen you. He made a decision. As Jesus said to the woman, I could go on, he said, your sins are forgiven you. Everything you've done in violation to what is true and right, it's sin, it's evil, but you're forgiven. And he looks at Simon and said, listen, Simon, you got this all wrong. You're not understanding. He who has forgiven little loves little. Loving God has to be based on what he's done for us. Go to the book of John, Gospel of John, back to the end, back of your Bible, back chapter 15. You go down to verse 16, Jesus teaching about the vine and the branches. He's teaching his disciples, and he said to them, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain. He said, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you 
So if you go back to chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 37, chapter 6 and verse 37, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He's coming to Jesus. The Father gives them to me. Look over verse 44 of John chapter 6. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I'll raise them up at the last day. So what is the issue here? Is that when the Bible says, therefore, chosen by God, chosen by God, that is packed full of grace. It's packed full of forgiveness. It's packed full of a reality that we weren't much, we weren't much to be bargained for. But he declared that we're worth it when he forgives us of our sin, chosen by God. Now, if you can't get anything more out of this this morning, grab hold of that one. God has chosen you, and in that he values you, in that he forgives you, despite what you've done, all that your life could be. He is a forgiving God, and he chose us. And we work not to be saved. We're not trying to be saved, but because we receive saving grace, we follow him. We're going to get there. First uh, Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, by grace I work. It's what God has done for me. I now do what I do. Philippians chapter 2 said, God is at work in us to do of his good will and pleasure. God is working in us, chosen by God. Well, back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says another word, another word, chosen by God and holy, holy. There's a word that we don't want to attach to ourselves either. We don't want to say that we're made holy. That sounds so full of pride and so whatever that we would never say, well, I'm a holy person. Well, who do you think you are? But I'm telling you, in God's word, it says you're holy. You have been set apart. Look at verse 12 again. God's chosen people, holy, holy. You see, we're set apart. Believers set apart from the world. To be righteous in Christ, to serve God. You go, let's go back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Keep something there in Colossians, Exodus 19. And it began and it said uh, concerning Israel, the Jewish people, when he brought them out of, of Egypt in Exodus 19, verse 4. Say to the people, tell them this, verse 4. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I brought you to myself, set you apart, that you might be a kingdom of priests. First Peter chapter um, uh, 1, it says that, or for, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, it says you're chosen people to be a holy people, a priesthood. Now, what is the reaction of one who has been chosen by God and now set apart, set apart to be used by God, made holy in Christ? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he said, now purify yourself. Purify yourself. Practice holiness. Begin to separate from sin in the world. 
So, so far we got two great statements about us. Chosen by God and made holy. But the third one seems to be my theme this morning about what I'm saying is that he said, you are not only chosen by God and holy, but dearly loved. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Dearly loved. I remember uh, last year about this time, uh, my mom, you know, was, she was 96 when she passed away, she was, so she would have been 94 or 5, she had just turned 95, and she came across to him that said, no one ever cared for me like Jesus, and she made that her theme, if you got a card from her any time, she put a little uh, uh, piece of paper that had the wor- words to that hymn in the, in the, in the card. She had it made up. Uh, some of us went together and bought her, bought her a sweatshirt and said, uh, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. Because that opens up a set of, of conversation. What do you mean no, ever, no one ever cared for you like Jesus did? Well, I had a husband for 70-some, whatever years they lived, 60, 70 years, whatever it was they were together. And we had our struggles. And he said he loved me, but no one loved me like Jesus did. I had a bunch of kids. They said they loved me, but no ever, nobody ever loved me like Jesus did. Why is that? Because Jesus sees beyond our faults, and he loves us. No one ever cared for you like Jesus does. I, I was getting ready for the sermon this morning, and I said, dare I do this? Somebody say, I dare you. Just say, I dare you. I'm not doing it. I don't care if you dare me. No. <laughs> that, that's like... Uh, I gave this excuse, or we all tried to give it to our parents one time. Well, everybody else was doing it. Well, if they told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Well, they did it. Everybody's doing it. So, so you just dared me. So here it is what it is. I want you to sing a little chorus with me. You know it. If you don't know it, you're going to learn it. I think you know it. Jesus loves me. Come on. This I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he... You're doing pretty good, yes. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Everybody asked you what you did at church yesterday, said we had to sing a song. Jesus loves, and you sing it for them and they'll be amazed if you get all the way through it. There's a verse that says Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. Anyway, none of that. You just sang that song. Jesus loves me. When it says the Bible says that you are dearly loved by God, the Bible says it. I know it because I've experienced. You need to know it. You need to live in the loving hand of God. Jesus loves me. This I know. And the interesting thing about love, it's a motivation for so many activities, even in the natural world. What you love, you're going to do. It causes you to go to something. 
If you love sports, you watch sports. If you love hot dogs, you eat a lot of hot dogs. If you love your dog, you pet your dog and feed your dog. Whatever you love, it motivates you. But I'm telling you that what this scripture is talking about is not that kind of love. It's a love that is birthed and born and a motivator for what the fact is you've been chosen by God. You've been made holy by him. And he dearly loves you. Because the verse 12 says, therefore, as You've been chosen by God. Now, clothe yourself, verse 13. Clothe yourself with these things. So you look at verse 13, back in Colossians. Clothe yourselves with, and he gives a list, compassion, kindness, and so forth. It would be an interesting study for you to make. I tried to do a little bit of it, but I gave up because it's too big. Um, is to study all the, the places where it talks about clothes in the Bible and garments. We began this today by, and there was a reason we sang it, put on the garment of praise. Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Put on who you are. Put on, clothe yourself out of what he just said about you, that you belong to him, you, he loves you, he's chosen, you belong to him. Uh, last night I watched the, um, the play that my granddaughter was in uh, called Annie. Many of you know that little story about a little orphan girl, and she wanted to find her mom and dad, and Daddy Warbucks found her and all that stuff. Well, my granddaughter did not have a lead part. She was just simply an orphan in the back. I said, you could do that. Never mind. Uh, I'm like a typical grandpa, and what... Ken and Juan are going to become, they're going to be all this grandparent thing I know now since they are grandparents. But anyway, you get to love your grandkids and you think how great they are. But anyway, the storyline is very interesting because as an orphan, they felt abandoned. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. But in the story as it goes, here's this rich guy, Daddy Warbucks, who said, I want, a, I want an orphan with me in over Christmas. So they find Annie and she comes and you know how that story turns out. But he tells her in the, the, in the play, in the story of Annie, he comes and said, my mom and dad were killed. I had nobody and I was an orphan and I became wealthy. And she gives some, well, you pretty did pretty good for yourself, didn't you? And he said, I want to help you. And in the story, she, he adopts her at the end and she becomes his child. And I thought, isn't that the way it is? We've been left without hope, without God, and God comes in through Jesus, draws us to the Father, and he says, you belong to me. You now have a name. Now you don't dress in orphan clothes anymore. You dress in Daddy Warbuck clothes. You belong here. And he said, uh, I remember one scene in the play last night. She said, uh, he said, well, now where shall we, we begin? And Annie said, well, I'll start scrubbing the floors here, and I'll take the drapes off. She said, no, 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 no. You're a child of Daddy Warbucks now. You're adopted. You don't do that anymore. That's for other people. You are elevated. You have reason. You have purpose. So I'm just thinking about how this stuff works out. Now, this is not a play. It's not a story. It's truth. And therefore, he said, as God's children, now clothe yourself. I began to think about clothes in Scripture. They're very interesting you ready for another adventure in your Bible? I make you turn all the time, don't I? I want you to know what your Bible says. So go to Genesis chapter 3. Start at the very beginning pages. 
And I believe that this is the first mention of garments in the Bible. Clothing. Now, an interesting, it's, it's an interesting truth. I just want to give you a few of this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve had disobeyed God. They came under judgment of God that says you have to leave this garden. And verse 20 said, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God himself, please notice the words that it said. It, it, he didn't tell one of the angels. He didn't think, well, snap is going to happen. He made it clothing for them to cover them. I could talk about that, but he made garments to cover them. Go to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. This is a story of, of Jacob, and he had a son. His name was Joseph, Jacob's son, 37.3. Now, Israel loved Joseph, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had born to him, had born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. I think some of the colors or the other scriptures define a coat of many colors, ornate. It was beautiful. And what did it indicate? That dad loved that kid more than the rest of us. And there was jealousy, and you know what happened. He was hated by what that represented, love. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter uh, 21. Write them down if you can't find these books quickly. But I want you to see 1 Samuel 21. I'm talking about putting on garments and what sometimes what these things uh, are used in. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and you look down, and uh, verse 10 of chapter 21, that day David fled from King Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one that they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to the servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short-handed of madmen that you want to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Get him out of here. He did actions, but he also was not wearing anything having to do with a king's garment. He was acting like a man who was mad. And God rescued him through that. Go to chapter 28. Chapter 28. Let's see what Saul did. 28, verse 8. 1 Samuel 28 and verse 8. So Saul, King Saul, was looking for an answer. God wasn't talking to him. He said, find me somebody who's a medium, a witch. I want to go to her. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two of his men went to the woman, consult a spirit for me. He said, bring up one who I can name. And the woman said, I know you. I know you. You're trying to set a trap for me. He tried to disguise himself. Clothing can give an indication of what's going on. There's a lot of these stories I'm giving you, these events that happen 
that we could take time and look at every one and, and analyze all of them. But every one of these have clothing that indicated something. Now, once you go to John chapter 11, I won't go too much more about clothing this morning, but I want you to see this. John chapter 11 and verse 44. Now, John 11, verse 44. This is a story of Lazarus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he died. Jesus didn't come after his death. He has been buried, and people are mourning for him. And Mary runs out. Martha runs out, said, if you've been in here, he, you wouldn't have died. Mary says the same thing. I'm the resurrection of life, Jesus said. So he said the word, Lazarus, come forth. Um, look down, um, verse 43. And when Jesus said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with stripes of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's interesting that, again, if you look at what happened, this man was covered over. He was dead. He was in a grave. Jesus raised him, but he was still dressed. And what he looked like, he looked like a dead man wrapped up in a grave. He said, I want you to take off those clothes. Get rid of the grave clothes. He's got something over his face. His head was wrapped. Get that off. He's got something on his hands. Get those off. He's got something on his feet. Get that off. The principle, I believe, in resurrection life is God wants to get my mouth cleaned up, my hands to serve him, and my feet to walk with him. I need the grave clothes off. I need to put, as Colossians 3 says, now clothe yourself with something else. Make it go. Make it something else happen. Our clothes do express who you are in some way. Now, we can all protest that. It's, well, I'm not like I dress. Well, who are you then? It's an indication of personality often. I know people uh, who don't like those words, but you can often tell someone about a person by how they present themselves. We saw King Saul. We saw David. We see... Uh, Lazarus, see all these people. I want to give a couple just personal experiences about this. Um, I had a young man live with us, and he started to change how he dressed and go to school. And uh, pretty soon he's wearing black jeans, black shirt, and a long black trench coat. And uh, this goes back a lot of years, so this was the time of the grunge look. It was all black, and everything was black. And I said, well, could you tell me why you're dressing like that now? Why, why is that the only piece of wardrobe you want to wear? Well, because I want to wear it. Well, uh, why? I mean, you do know that that gives an appearance of being one of the rebellious people at school. Well, no, they're not. They are not like that. They are different than that. Well, what do you mean? Well, they accept everybody. You don't have to be like all those other kids. You're in that group, and they accept you. And I said, okay, let's test your theory. If I was a young guy in your school, and I wore a white short sleeve shirt with a tie and a plastic pen holder in my pocket, and I wore high-rise pants with white socks and dress shoes, would you let me in your group? 
Could I sit with you guys at lunch? Oh, no. We don't want you here. Oh, I thought you accepted everybody. I said, listen, what you are wearing will indicate a lot of what's going on inside of you as a young person. It will indicate what's going on there. I said, could I just give you a principle? If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is likely a duck. So you're telling me that you can dress this way and, not t- and tell me, oh, I'm not like that inside. Oh, yeah? I don't know that. Why? Because your garments indicate you what is going on inside of you. If Judy's not listening to this, but well, she might be, so honey, I still love you. But anyway, I, I married a California girl and all that that means. So she comes into our family. My two little sisters are six and eight years old. And in the 70s, there was a different dress. And the hair was different. You know, six cans of hairspray and a flip that wouldn't move. You could blow tornado on it. It wouldn't move. Remember that? Some of you old ladies remember that. I had sisters. I knew that from then. Okay, so my six-year-old and eight-year-old sisters looked at her and said, we don't wear stuff like that. We do not. Who are you? I'm married to your brother. Leave us alone. They had a stand. You look like you're from California. Well, she was. And I loved her. (laughs) Never mind. Anyway, so you, you go on with this and how you dress. I had to look it up this morning, but back in 1989, we had the chapel up here. And I had a man who came to the door of the church one time. And he was dressed in a green J.C. Penney work uniform. If you, some of you remember that, they were green pants, green shirt, and green hat, all in the in the working man's outfit that you get down at J.C. Penney. And he came in, took his hat off, and he's an older gentleman. And he said, uh, "Do you mind if I just would spend some time in prayer today?" I said, "Absolutely, come on in." And Mr. Stewart walked to the front of the old church chapel up there and he'd stand before the altar and he just held his hat and he would be here for about five or ten minutes praying just talking to God and I said well I said I have to go my wife is an invalid and I went to the grocery store but I have five minutes that I can come and pray and then I'm going to go home and take care of her I've never met a man who served his wife like that man did but he did it often green pants green shirt green hat came took his hat off and prayed and talked to God well, Mr. Stewart died, and in the lineup, his wife was uh, hospitalized, but he said, I want Pastor Jim to do my funeral. Well, I did the funeral, and I could not believe how many suits came to the funeral to honor this man. And I'm not talking J.C. Penney suits. I'm talking Hart Shafter and Marks and all the rest of them. I mean, they were to the nines dressed up. I said, why are you here? He said he was the chief executive president of whatever. I try to remember the company, but it was a huge, huge company in Ohio. And we want to give him honor because he was a wonderful man. All I knew him by was a green pair of J.C. Penney work pants. He gave me an impression, and I was humble. I didn't care. He didn't care. But I thought, here I'm, I'm looking at this guy thinking he's a, maybe a factory worker, worked and just came and was praying. He was an executive. 
high-dollar guy who said, I want to dress like this, and I want to pray, and that's okay. We judge ourselves too much. The Bible says in Revelation there's going to be a time when we're going to be clothed with garments of righteousness, the acts of the saints. Either the, each of these qualities have something to do, out of Colossians 3, with what man sees, how you present yourself, why you need to clothe yourself with these things. It's about relationship. I'm not going to go over all of them this morning. You can read them. They're very straightforward. But I ask you this. How are you dressed up? What are you putting on? Because it's a decision. Every one of you put something on today by decision. You looked at your closet and said, I want this, that. You looked, oh, that's in the wash. I can't put that on today. I better do Oh, I wore that the last three weeks. I'm not wearing it. What are you doing? We're getting dressed for the occasion. We're doing dresses. How are you dressing as a citizen of heaven? How are you dressing as one who has been chosen by God, who has called you holy, who has dearly loves you? As you've done that, as you understand that, therefore, put on, clothe yourself. The thing about this kind of clothes, it only comes when you bump into me and I bump into you. Well, I'm being kind, I'm being gentle, I have humility, I do those things. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Put on good clothes, we'll talk about it. Worship team, if you would come. As you stand together with me, just imagine yourself. The Bible says put on the full armor of God. You get dressed in the armor of God, but put on these things. Lord Jesus, as we're standing before you, you see our hearts, you see us. And Lord, we want to walk out and be dressed like you called us to be, being your people in this day, that people can say there's something different. I look at them, there's something going on. They're behaving not as the world. They put off their grave clothes. They're putting on the righteous clothes of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to display that. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, we can be encouraged by your word and we can walk in that. Thank you for your great love. We're going to simply live for